Welcome to the October 13th, 2022 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll learn more about the prognostic impact of NPM1 and FLT3 mutations in AML, discuss the progression and survival of monoclonal B-cell lymphocytosis, and learn more about the use of red blood cells derived from pluripotent stem cells in transfusion medicine. Our first blood article is entitled Prognostic Impact of NPM1 and FLT3 Mutations in Patients with AML in First Remission Treated with Oral Azacitidine by Hartmut Donner from the University Hospital Ulm in Ulm, Germany, and an international group of colleagues. The pathogenesis of AML has been linked to a wide range of cytogenetic and molecular abnormalities. Alterations in nucleophosmin 1, or NPM1, and FIMS-related tyrosine kinase 3, or FLT3, are the most common gene mutations in AML and often occur together. NPM1 proteins play important roles in cellular function, with significant effects on RNA expression, DNA replication, transcription, and repair, and protein folding. NPM1 is mutated in about 30% of patients with AML. FLT3 is a receptor tyrosine kinase, which is critical for proliferation, differentiation, and survival of multipotent stem cells. Mutations in the FLT3 gene are also present in approximately 30% of AML patients at diagnosis and frequently manifest as internal tandem duplications, also known as FLT3 ITD mutations, or as point mutations in the tyrosine kinase domain. In the absence of FLT3 ITD mutations, NPM1-mutated AML is sensitive to intensive chemotherapy and associated with a favorable prognosis. Conversely, FLT3 ITD mutations are typically associated with a poor prognosis in the absence of co-occurring NPM1 mutations. Approximately 40% to 80% of patients with AML achieve complete remission with intensive chemotherapy. However, most will eventually relapse. The presence of measurable residual disease after induction therapy or MRD, is a strong predictor of poor overall survival, or OS, and relapse-free survival, or RFS, for patients who achieve initial remission. Azacitidine is an oral hypomethylating agent approved for use in patients with AML who achieve complete remission or complete remission with incomplete blood recovery after intensive chemotherapy and who are not eligible for hematopoietic stem cell transplant. In the Phase 3 Quasar AML001 trial, oral azacitidine significantly improved both OS and RFS in older patients in first remission after intensive chemotherapy, compared to placebo, as reported in a New England Journal of Medicine paper in 2020. In the current study, the authors performed post-hoc analyses of data from the Quasar trial to better assess the efficacy of oral azacitidine, specifically in patients with NPM1 and or FLT3 mutations, and to investigate whether survival outcomes in these patients were influenced by MRD status after intensive chemotherapy. Quasar AML001 enrolled a total of 472 patients, of which 469, or 99.4%, had mutational data available at AML diagnosis. 
Patients were 55 years of age or older and had newly diagnosed de novo or secondary AML with intermediate or poor-risk cytogenetics at diagnosis. They achieved first remission after intensive chemotherapy, but were not candidates for hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. Study subjects were randomized one-to-one to oral azacitidine, or placebo, once daily for 14 days, in repeated 28-day treatment cycles. The analysis of gene alterations, including FLT3-ITD mutations, was performed using PCR or NGS-based methods. OS and RFS served as the primary and key secondary endpoints, respectively. These endpoints were compared between the two treatment arms to evaluate each mutation as a potential biomarker for survival. MRD status was determined using multi-parameter flow cytometry, and the influence of MRD status on survival outcomes was assessed in patients harboring the NPM1 or FLT3 mutations. NPM1 and FLT3 mutations were found in 29.2% and 14.1% of patients, respectively. 6.4% of patients had both the NPM1 and FLT3-ITD mutations at diagnosis. In patients with an NPM1 mutation, treatment with oral azacitidine improved OS and RFS by 37% and 45%, respectively, compared to placebo. Azacitidine improved the median OS in NPM1 mutant patients in both MRD-positive and MRD-negative cases. In patients with a FLT3 mutation, treatment with azacitidine improved the OS and RFS by 37% and 49%, respectively, compared to placebo. In patients with a FLT3 mutation who were also MRD-negative, median OS with azacitidine compared to placebo was 28.2 months versus 16.2 months. In patients with a FLT3 mutation who were MRD-positive, median OS was 24 months versus 8 months, respectively. Multivariate analyses found that treatment with azacitidine significantly improved patient survival, independent of the NPM1 or FLT3 mutational status, cytogenetic risk, or MRD status after intensive chemotherapy. Taken together, these findings point to a survival benefit of oral azacitidine in patients with AML, irrespective of the FLT3 or NPM1 mutational status. In an accompanying commentary, Mark Levis, from the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland, notes that the demonstrated efficacy of oral azacitidine in FLT3 and NPM1-mutated subtypes of AML supports the real-world applicability of this therapy. To date, the only AML maintenance treatment associated with a survival benefit is FLT3 kinase inhibition in the post-transplant setting. The other explored maintenance approaches, including chemotherapy, immunotherapy, and small molecules, have not proven effective so far. However, the findings from the Quasar study and this latest work by Donner and collaborators have positioned azacitidine as an essential treatment for a growing fraction of AML patients, ultimately leading to FDA approval of oral azacitidine as continuation therapy. Levis emphasizes that finding ways to combine oral azacitidine with other agents, including venetoclax, should be the next priority. He postulates that the combination of oral azacitidine with a FLT3 inhibitor could be feasible following venetoclax-based induction, and that testing combination treatments of oral azacitidine with IDH inhibitors or menin inhibitors may be of interest in the future.
Next up, we'll discuss an article published in Blood entitled Progression and Survival of Monoclonal B-Cell Lymphocytosis, or MBL, a screening study of 10,139 individuals, by Susan Slager from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and colleagues. Monoclonal B-cell lymphocytosis, or MBL, is a pre-malignant hematological condition associated with the development of chronic lymphocytic leukemia. It is present in approximately 3% to 12% of Caucasian individuals and up to 22% of those with a relative affected by CLL. MBL is characterized by an absolute clonal B-cell count less than 5 times 10 to the 9th per liter and no evidence of organomegaly, lymphadenopathy, or cytopenias. MBL is divided into two groups based on the size of the MBL clone in circulation. Low-count MBL refers to MBL with a clonal B-cell count less than 0.5 times 10 to the 9th per liter, and high-count MBL refers to MBL with a clonal B-cell count between 0.5 and 5 times 10 to the 9th per liter. Low-count MBL is significantly more prevalent than high-count MBL, affecting approximately 8 to 10 million adults in the United States. Few screening studies to date have evaluated the clinical outcomes of patients with low and high-count MBL. In a previous study of 448 individuals, the authors found that low-count MBL preceded a diagnosis of CLL by more than eight years, and that individuals with this condition progressed to CLL at a rate of 1.1% per year. In a separate screening study of 1,045 individuals, it was found that patients with low-count MBL have a 1.6-fold increased risk of being hospitalized due to infections compared to individuals without MBL. The goal of the current study was to evaluate the incidence and natural history of MBL and its association with future hematological malignancies and overall survival in a large cohort. Study participants were identified from the Mayo Clinic Biobank, a biorepository of 56,959 adult patients seen at primary care clinics between 2009 and 2016. A random sample of 10% of participants who were older than 40 years and lacked any history of hematologic cancer was screened for MBL, resulting in 4,207 individuals who comprised the MBL discovery cohort. A second cohort, consisting of 5,932 people, was similarly selected and screened and was termed the MBL validation cohort. Overall, a total of 10,139 individuals were screened for MBL across the discovery and validation cohorts. MBL screening was performed using a sensitive eight-color flow cytometry assay, looking at surface expression of kappa and lambda light chains and multiple lymphocyte markers. And all cases of MBL were confirmed by a Mayo Clinic hematopathologist. 1,712 individuals, or 17% of the combined discovery and validation cohorts, had confirmed MBL, while 8,174 were negative for MBL, and 2% had insufficient blood samples for analysis. 95% of individuals positive for MBL had low-count MBL. The median age of individuals with MBL was 72 years, compared to 65 years in controls. The prevalence of MBL increased with increasing age, ranging from 4% among those between 40 to 49 years to 42% among those 90 years or older. 
MBL was more common in males, 22%, than females, 14%, but equally common by race. Importantly, a chart review of patients in the discovery cohort showed that after adjusting for age and sex, MBL was associated with a statistically significant 3.6-fold higher risk of developing a hematological cancer compared to controls and a 7.7-fold overall increase in lymphoid malignancies. Individuals with high-count MBL had a much higher incidence of subsequent lymphoid malignancies, 74-fold increase, than those with low-count MBL, who had a 4.3-fold increase. High-count MBL was also associated with a significantly shorter overall survival, while overall survival of low-count MBL patients was not significantly decreased over the observation period compared to controls. Individuals from the Discovery cohort who were still alive in 2017 and lived near the Mayo Clinic were invited to give a second blood sample and be rescreened for MBL. Out of a total of 566 patients who were initially negative for MBL, 67, or 13%, had developed a new MBL clone after a median follow-up time of 9.9 years. Of the 58 individuals who were found to have MBL at the initial screening, 93% still had MBL on rescreening, and in about 25% of those, the MBL clone had increased in size. In an accompanying commentary, Gerlad Marti, from the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute in Maryland, notes that the study by Slager and collaborators highlights several important findings, including the high prevalence of low-count MBL and the pattern of greater incidence of MBL with age and in males. Another important finding is the 4.3-fold increased risk of lymphoid malignancy in low-count MBL and a 74-fold increased risk in high-count MBL. Biorepositories with two or more time points of stored samples are critical to better understanding the natural history of MBL, Marty adds. Data from biorepositories allow for the assessment of whether MBL is stable, progressive, or transient. In several recent studies, analysis of biorepository data revealed that MBL may precede the diagnosis of CLL up to several decades in certain cases. Marty questions whether the natural history of familial MBL differs from that of non-familial MBL. Studies so far have found that the prevalence of MBL among first-degree relatives of CLL patients is significantly higher, approximately 22%. The studies of unaffected first-degree relatives and family pedigrees provide a unique opportunity to further investigate the natural history of MBL and to understand the steps that lead to the development of MBL, the potential association between MBL and infection, and whether the susceptibility loci found in CLL are also common in MBL. In the final segment of today's podcast, we will discuss the report entitled the use of pluripotent stem cells to generate diagnostic tools for transfusion medicine by Hayun Hayung An from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia in Pennsylvania and colleagues. Red blood cell transfusion is a common treatment for a range of hematologic conditions, including sickle cell disease, thalassemia, bone marrow failure syndrome, and cancer. A major challenge in this approach is the development of alloantibodies to red cell antigens, which can reduce the safety and efficacy of transfused cells. Rhesus factor D status of the donor and recipient 
are routinely examined as part of red cell transfusion protocols. However, other Rh antigens, including C, E, and K, or KEL, antigens, are also immunogenic and may lead to antibody-induced complications. Extended Rh matching that also considers C, E, and K Rh antigens has decreased, but not eliminated, the frequency of post-transfusion alloimmunization against Rh antigenic variants. The Rh genetic diversity is particularly complex in sickle cell disease and makes the identification of all Rh antibodies difficult, even with extended Rh matching. For example, the low-prevalence Rh antigens, such as V, VS, GOA, and DAC, are expressed primarily on the red blood cells of black individuals and are associated with alloimmunization, but are not always part of initial cross-matching. Panels of standardized red cells with different Rh types are routinely used in blood banks to look for anti-Rh antibodies in the plasma of potential blood recipients. However, with hundreds of different Rh antigen phenotypes, many of which are rare, it has become increasingly difficult to detect all variants. Appropriate reagent red blood cells with uncommon Rh antigen phenotypes are typically only available in specialized immunohematology laboratories and are often not available in routine blood banks. To address these challenges in the current study, the authors aim to generate a renewable source of red blood cells with unique Rh phenotypes, also known as IRBCs, from human-induced pluripotent stem cells. Rh genotyping was performed on donor peripheral blood mononuclear cells, or PBMCs, or embryonic cells, using standard assays. PBMCs from individuals with rare Rh types were reprogrammed into induced pluripotent stem cells, or iPSCs, using standard culture techniques, and could then be induced to generate RBCs in vitro, in medium supplemented with stem cell factor and erythropoietin. A panel of iPSC cells with unique phenotypes were generated, and RBCs derived from these cells were validated with known antibodies. For example, Clones were selected that lacked certain high-prevalence Rh antigens, or conversely, selectively expressed various rare antigens. These induced red cells were then compared to donor-derived RBCs obtained from the New York Blood Center and shown to give identical results in cross-matching assays. In addition, the authors used gene editing to create a novel iPSC cell line in which both the RHD and RHCE genes had been completely deleted termed an Rh null cell line. By targeting the AAVS1 safe harbor locus in these Rh null cells, they demonstrated that any combination of Rhd or RHCE cDNAs could be reintroduced to generate red blood cells that express specific rare Rh antigens, such as Rhd alone, GOA, or DAC. These IRBCs were also compatible with standard laboratory assays and could detect the presence of plasma alloantibodies against low-prevalence allelic variants. The efficacy of IRBCs was validated using real-life patient plasma tests. The authors concluded that Rh-engineered red blood cells can serve as a readily accessible diagnostic tool and may guide future efforts in the development of alternative sources of rare red blood cells for alloimmunized patients. In an accompanying commentary, Jose Canceles from the Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center in Ohio notes that the investigators present convincing data showing that these IRBCs 
are comparable to donor-derived red blood cells in their ability to detect anti-RH antigen antibodies and do not agglutinate or cause false positive reactions when incubated with plasma containing no antibodies or antibodies directed against non-RH antigens. However, unlike donor-derived red blood cells, the cytokine-driven erythroid differentiation generates red cells derived from primitive erythropoiesis programs, which do not express many of the antigens found in donor-derived red blood cells, such as MNS, KID, Duffy, and Lutheran. Finally, Cancellus notes that the overall lifespan of IRBCs stored in conventional preservation buffers is reduced, which points to the need for the development of optimized storage approaches that may be applicable in the pre-transfusion testing for SCD patients and other chronically transfused patients. He suggests that these issues can be significantly prevented by the use of nascent, yet inefficient, methods of definitive erythropoiesis differentiation of IPSC. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.